In study five, we're going to look at what Paul said about Jesus Christ. What Paul said about Jesus Christ. Now, not surprisingly, Paul's encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus totally revolutionised his life and his thinking. You may remember we looked at that in some detail in study one, what precisely that meant for Paul. So much so did it revolutionise his life and thinking that he spent the rest of his life preaching and writing about the risen, crucified Christ. have to remember that before this Damascus Road experience, any teaching about the crucified Messiah had been complete anathema to Paul and was one of the main reasons why he'd persecuted the followers of the way as it was then called, who held this belief that the Messiah had been crucified. They held that belief to be true. And we looked at that back in study one. So his Damascus Road experience precipitated, if I can say it, an about turn in his thinking. And Paul was now found proclaiming that the Messiah had not only been crucified, but also had risen from the dead. So in that you can see the complete turnaround in Paul's belief and thinking. And he himself had been a witness of the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead, having met him in person on the Damascus Road and everything that went with that. So we find that these two themes recur throughout Paul's preaching of the gospel and his letters where he develops the implications of these beliefs in the crucified Christ and the risen Christ in some detail. So first of all, let's look at what Paul had to say about the crucified Christ. Remembering, of course, that the word Christ is a title and it can also be translated, it's the Hebrew Messiah, the Greek word being Christ. Paul spoke of Jesus as the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who was sacrificed on the cross. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, we read these words, and I quote, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Now the phrase Passover lamb recalled the events of the Passover which we can read about in Exodus 12 verses 1 to 30 and I'm sure you're all familiar with that. When a lamb died in the place of the firstborn of each family thus saving them from death. And a celebration Passover meal was held annually in remembrance of God's provision and mercy towards his people. And the slaughter of the Passover lamb prefigured the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, who died in our place to save mankind from death by taking away the sin of the world. 
And for examples of that, you can see Isaiah 53.7 and John 1.29. And this makes eternal life possible for each person. And so in Romans 6.23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it was no coincidence that Christ, the Lamb of God, was crucified on Passover day. The Passover celebration actually began the evening before when the Passover meal was eaten. And Jesus had shared that meal with his disciples before his betrayal, deliberately using and deliberately giving a new meaning, a new meaning to the unleavened bread and a new meaning to the cup of thanksgiving, which were both on the Passover table. Jesus didn't bring them in in a bag and stick them down by his side and then suddenly produce this bread and this cup. It was all part of the Passover celebration that Jews had celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years in remembrance of that event during the time of Moses. And here Jesus was, you see, this is all no coincidence. This is all to get across the point that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And the Passover Lamb prefigured him, foreshadowed him and what he was going to do. And how he was bringing salvation to the world, rather than just salvation to individuals, as happened back in those times. And in the earliest written record of the Lord's Supper, which is not, which is not in the Gospels, I know the Gospels come first, but I think we've got to try and get past this of thinking because it comes first in the Bible, therefore it was written first. No, it wasn't. The earliest written record of the Lord's Supper is by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 11 and look at verses 23 to 25. Because here we see that Paul explains this new meaning to it all. So 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 to 25. In which he says, very familiar words to us all I'm sure. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So there he's using the unleavened bread on the table. And strictly speaking, we should be using unleavened bread at communions. In fact, I was brought up in a church where that was exactly the case. The unleavened bread was used. Why? Because of the connection with the Passover. That's why. If you just have ordinary bread, I don't care whether it's gluten-free or it's not, it's not making that direct connection in that sense of being unleavened bread like they had. So, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
So these symbols on the Passover table spoke of his coming, spoke of his death, spoke of its significance, and were a means of remembering him. This is the only um, remembrance that the sacrament, if you like, it's the only sacrament that Jesus instituted, was the fact that we should remember him. We should break the bread and we should drink the wine in remembrance of him and what he did and make that connection. And then back in chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So we are participating in this amazing way with Christ and what he did as we take the bread and as we take the wine, which is absolutely packed full of significance every time that we do it. The old covenant, with its endless sacrificial system, had been replaced by the new covenant with its once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was that once-and-for-all sacrifice. He became sin for us and he paid the price. He paid the price for the sins of the world by giving himself up to die on the cross. As Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 4, referring to Jesus, and I quote, who gave himself for our sins. And in 1 Timothy 2, 6, quote, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. More about ransom shortly. And this was the sole reason for his incarnation. 1 Timothy 1, 15, quote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think that's lovely when I read it. Not to do good things, not to be well thought of, but to save sinners. That's what it was all about. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the sole reason why he came. And of course, this is indeed a cause for thanksgiving because through faith in Christ, sinners who repent are, first of all, cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus the Lamb, so they can now stand in God's presence. Secondly, they're forgiven their sins, meaning that they are now justified in God's sight. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And thirdly, they are brought back into a right relationship with God, now being at one with him. So what Jesus did is therefore often called the at one which we pronounce as atonement. But if you break it down, that's what it says, at-one-ment. And that's what it was all about, to make us at one with God, to restore our relationship with him. And the Corinthians are examples of such repentant sinners. And in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, Paul lists examples of sinful behaviour. And then he says, and I quote, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
So the Corinthians are examples of this process of cleansing, forgiveness and restoration that he talks about here. And when we get to our next study, study six, there'll be a lot more explanation of what we mean by justification and other terms. And Paul speaks of the wonder of all of this. The wonder of it all. Romans 3.25, and I quote, God presented him, that's Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement, as a sacrifice of atonement through his faith, through faith, I should say, in his blood. Romans 4.25, he was, quote, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5.9, quote, we have now been justified by his blood. 1 Corinthians 15.3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Ephesians 2.13, quote, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far away, meaning far away from God, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And back to Romans once again, chapter 8, verse 3. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. To be a sin offering. Now that sin offering meant that a holy God who had been angered by sin, was now appeased. His requirement for justice in respect of sin had been satisfied by the death of his holy, sinless son, who took upon himself the sin of the world, thus paying the price for sin that was demanded by a holy God. So Christ, the sacrificial lamb. Paul also affirms that Christ's blood has paid the price of our redemption. It's paid the price of our redemption. Buying us back from the kingdom of darkness, forgiving us and setting us free from sin. So in Ephesians 1.7 we read, and I quote, In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And you'll find something similar in Romans 3.24. And in Colossians 1.14 we read, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Back to Romans 6, verse 18. Quote, you have been set free from sin. And Titus 2, and verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. So this redemption keeps coming up. A word that Paul keeps on using because Christ's blood has not only cleansed us from sin, but has paid the price of our redemption. We've been bought back. And there's another aspect to redemption in Paul's writings. 
You see, in Roman times, slaves could be redeemed and set free if a ransom of the appropriate price was paid. Slaves could be redeemed and set free if a ransom of the appropriate price was paid. So redemption therefore means being set free from slavery and saved from death. Now believers are redeemed by Christ who paid the appropriate price. This is the price, the only price that God was prepared to accept. The perfect sacrifice for sin. So Christ paid that appropriate price and therefore we are redeemed in order that we might live holy and righteous lives. We're no longer, quote, slaves to sin, but rather, as we see in Romans 6, verse 6, where he talks about slaves to sin, and verse 18, where he says, but rather we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So we've been set free from slavery to sin, but we're still, because of that, we've been bought. Redemption means, you see, becoming Christ's slave. Um, It means that we have been set free from the slavery of sin, yes, and we all say, hooray, fantastic. But sometimes we overlook the fact that actually we are now slaves to righteousness because he's ransomed us, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, and I quote, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, just like the slave in the Roman times, whose freedom was bought at a price. So you have been set free from the slavery of sin, but to become a slave to righteousness. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 19 to 20. So in other words, the way we live our lives, the way we treat our bodies, everything about us belongs to him because he has bought us with his blood. He's bought us back from the kingdom of this world. He's redeemed us. And Paul further points out that our redemption involved Jesus taking the curse, the curse of sin upon himself. And that was symbolised by him dying on a cross rather than in some other way. For Jesus to have been beheaded, let's say, would not have had the significance and the importance and the impact that him being crucified has had. Because he had to die on a cross to fulfil prophecy. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ, and I quote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and the fact, of course, the law is always connected with pointing out sin, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So hanging on the cross, made from a tree, okay, he's taking upon us a curse, so which the whole symbolism of that will be lost if he died in any other way, but he's cursed. He's taking upon himself the curse 
of sin and all that means. And as a result, we are now redeemed and released from that curse of sin and the slavery that it brought to sin. And that enables us, as he says in Galatians 3.26, to become, quote, children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And you also see that in Galatians 4.5. And our redemption will be complete when Christ comes again on what Paul calls that, and I quote, day of redemption. So there is a day of redemption yet to come. So we have experienced a day of redemption when we gave our lives to Christ and we were cleansed in his blood and we were bought back from the kingdom of the world, bought back from uh, the kingdom of darkness. But that will be complete. It's not yet complete. That fully complete day of redemption is going to happen in the future when Christ comes again. And you can see that in Ephesians 4 verse 30, Ephesians 1 verse 14 and Romans 8, 23. So that's all about Christ being our Redeemer and all the layers of meaning that that has and all the layers of symbolism that that presents us with. And then we move on to think about Christ who is also our Reconciler. He's our Sacrificial Lamb, He's our Redeemer and He's also our Reconciler. And Paul explains that just as was with the case with his birth, the timing of Christ's sacrificial death was also perfect. And so we read in Romans 5 and verse 6, and I quote, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And he mentions it writing to the Romans in 5, 6, and he mentions it in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 4. And Paul tells us that through Christ's sacrificial death, we have been reconciled. We've been reconciled to God and are now living at peace with him rather than being his enemies. So hostility has been exchanged for a friendly relationship. As he explains in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, quote, When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, in other words, through the crucified Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we have that personal relationship with God. We were at war with God, if you like, because we lived our lives according to the ways of sin, according to the ways of the kingdom of the world. But now we've been reconciled. And instead of being at war with God, we are now at one with him. And we have peace with God. And this will crop up again in our next study when we look at the way of salvation. There's also a global aspect to reconciliation. As the world, which is estranged from God, is brought back to him. And such a reconciliation is only possible because of the cross. Turn with me please to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. 
And Paul talks about this that we've just been mentioning here. And I quote, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. So there Paul's talking about this work of reconciliation, how it's restored our relationship with God and brought us from being at war with God to being at peace with God. That's reconciliation. And Paul also points out that what happened at the cross was all due to God reaching out in love and grace and taking the initiative. So we read in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So it's all of God. It was all of his initiative, his love and his grace. And God's love for sinful mankind is such that he, quote, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's Romans 8, 32. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, offering him as a sacrifice, reminiscent, of course, of Abraham not sparing Isaac, which you can see in Genesis 22, 16. So Paul leaves us in no doubt as to the motivating factors behind Christ's sacrificial death, namely divine love and divine grace. The cross is the proof of God's love for us, so we read in Romans 5, 8, and I quote, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Galatians 2, 20, Paul speaks of, quote, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Ephesians 5, 2, how, and I quote, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And Paul is just so in awe of such love. It's so amazing that he prays that the Ephesians in three, chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, quote, may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love and to know this love I should say that surpasses knowledge to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge Paul points out that no one has done anything to deserve or earn the right to be shown such amazing love. Salvation is a gift, 
which is only available because of what Paul calls God's, quote, glorious grace. It's all down to his glorious grace and his mercy. Ephesians 1, 6 and 2, 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. And in Titus 3, 5, he writes, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And this was Paul's personal experience, because he says, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 14, quote, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And Paul goes on to speak about the cost, about the cost of that grace in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. And I quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The cost of that grace. And Paul develops this in his letter to the Philippians where he draws attention to the humility, to the obedience and to the servanthood of Christ in becoming our sacrificial lamb. In Philippians 2.7 he describes how Jesus, quote, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In order to save us from our sins, he had to become one of us and become sin for us, which meant taking the humiliating way of the cross. So Philippians 2.8 we read, quote, He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The even death on a cross, under, he got in mind the curse, you see again, even death on a cross, That's the significance of it. If you'd like to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Because here he describes the wonder, the wonder of what actually happened there on the cross. And to try and get across this wonder of what happened... He uses three vivid pictures that we're going to look at. Three vivid pictures. One of my favourite parts of scripture, these pictures, showing the wonder of the cross. And these pictures show what God in Christ has done for us. And these pictures show that all that needs to be done for our salvation has been done and that no other intermediaries or additions are necessary. It's all been done. And the first picture we see is of a dead person brought to life. And this speaks of the fact that we have been liberated from the power and consequences of sin which had rendered us dead to God. And you also get a reference to that in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And it also speaks of the fact that we have been given new life in Christ. As he says in verse 13, quote, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. 
So we've been brought back to life. It's like we were dead and now we're alive. A dead person being brought back to life. And the second picture is one of the, what's called, quote, the written code. The written code is wiped and it's nailed. Two significant actions Paul points out to us there. It's wiped and it's nailed. Verse 14, quote, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So this written code that he refers to here is a charge list, if you like, or an IOU written by the debtor. So the picture Paul is using here is of us writing an IOU to God, acknowledging our sinfulness. And as we can't pay the debt for this list of sins, this charge stands opposed to us, is the phrase Paul uses, and it condemns us. But Jesus has cancelled, is the word that's used, which can also be translated wiped out. Wiped out what was on this IOU. Now, if you remember, ancient documents were written on papyrus or vellum, which was expensive and it was not to be wasted. So what they did was they used the ink that they used in those days didn't bite into the surface, as modern inks do. And so the writing could be erased, it could be wiped out with a sponge. And when this was done, it was as if the writing had never existed in the first place. And so you will find manuscripts used over and over again. In fact, in later, when they did use ink that bit in a bit, they've discovered a lot of what they call palimpsests, which are actually documents that were erased, but the writing is still of the original is still visible beneath. And now we've got the techniques to see this. But that's, that's how they used to do it. Well, what Paul is saying is, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God has wiped out the record of our sins, that charge list, as if it never existed. It's like God is saying, charge list? What charge list? I see no charge list, as if it never existed. And then picture here is that Paul has Jesus putting down the sponge and he gets out the hammer and he nails the IOU to the cross. He nails it to the cross. Why? To emphasise that it's all been sorted, that our debt has been completely forgiven because he was the sacrificial lamb hanging on the cross. Look, there's your IOU. It's been dealt with. It's been wiped. It's as if it never existed. It's all sorted. Our debt has been completely forgiven. So that is the second picture that Paul uses here to get across the wonder of the cross. And the third picture he uses in verse 15 is of a triumphal procession. Quote, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. Now we need to understand what this is based on. In those days, the victorious Roman general would lead a parade through the streets, a victory parade, with his victorious armies at the front, followed by their vanquished kings and leaders with their conquered soldiers. And their soldiers 
were stripped of both their armour and their weapons to symbolise their total defeat. And this was evidence of the general's complete victory for all to see. And Paul uses this as a picture of how at the cross Jesus conquered and the word he uses is disarmed. Disarmed Satan and all, quote, powers and authorities that would seek to enslave us and to keep us from having a relationship with God. Paul portrays Jesus parading them around in a sort of cosmic triumphal procession to show everyone that his victory over Satan and evil is total and complete. The crucified Christ is supreme over all. So three wonderful pictures that illustrate what the cross is all about what the crucified Christ brought into being. Well, with all that wonder going around in his mind, it's no wonder that Paul was frustrated at the indifferent response of many Jews and Gentiles to such a wonderful and powerful gospel. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, Jews demand miraculous signs, And Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the Greeks and Romans, in particular, were of the opinion that no reputable person would be put to death on a cross. No reputable person would ever finish up hanging on a cross. So, a crucified saviour seemed to them to be a very, very foolish concept indeed. It just made no sense. It made no sense at all. As for the Jews... They were expecting a victorious political King Messiah, not a crucified Christ. And Paul understood better than anyone why they balked at the idea of their Messiah on a cross. Because after all, hadn't he done the same before he met Christ on the Damascus Road? So he fully understood their thinking. In his letter to the Romans... Paul considers Israel's past, Israel's present and Israel's future. And this is what Romans 9, 10 and 11 are all about. They're all about Israel's past, present and future. And in these chapters, Paul agonises over the fact that they don't believe. He agonises over that fact. That they don't believe even though they have the law and they have a godly heritage, still they don't believe. Now these advantages of having a God-given law and a godly heritage should have enabled them to see and understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And in chapter 10 of Romans, verses 3 to 4, Jesus sets out the heart of the Jews' problem. And I quote, 
since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there, be, there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's the heart of the problem. That's the heart of the problem. The law doesn't bring righteousness, but the Jews think it does. The law doesn't bring righteousness, but the Jews think it does. This is the problem. And in, but in spite of this, Paul refuses to be downcast, believing that God has not rejected the Jews. And in verse 5 of chapter 11, Paul affirms that there is a remnant, quote, chosen by grace. There is a remnant chosen by grace who will respond to the crucified Christ. He believes that with all his heart. And he hopes that the Gentile response to the gospel through his ministry will be the means of bringing some Jews to salvation. And you can see that in chapter 11, verses 13 to 14. So what's going on among the Gentiles and the way they're responding, he's hoped is going to rub off on the Jews, if you like, and show them that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the crucified Christ. And he takes heart from words uttered by Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you look at chapter 11, verses 26 to 27, he takes heart from words spoken by those prophets and remains convinced that the Jews will respond to God's love, grace and mercy as the Gentiles have done. And that's down in chapter 11 and verse 31. So let's move on now to consider what Paul has to say about the risen Christ. Spent a lot of time talking about the crucified Christ. Let's what he, see what he has to say about the risen Christ. Very important to Paul to also show that Jesus the Messiah had risen from the dead. Not just been crucified, but had, been risen, from, had risen from the dead. So whenever he went to a synagogue... It was for the sole purpose, as Acts 17 verse 3 tells us, it was for the sole purpose of, and I quote, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. That's Acts 17 and verse 3. And as we uh, saw in study one, Paul explains to the Jews in Antioch in Pisidia in Acts 13, verses 29 to 30, quote, when they had carried out all that was written about him, obviously meaning Jesus, they took him down from the tree. Notice how he actually uses that word tree there. Again, the, the sort of curse idea coming through. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him 
from the dead. That's Acts 13, 29 to 30. And Paul goes on to quote various prophecies about the Messiah, which the good news of Jesus' resurrection fulfilled. <clears throat> Again, you can see that in Acts 13, down in verses 32 to 35. And Paul emphasises the fact that there were many witnesses to this event, looking at Acts 13, verse 31. And I quote, For many days he, meaning Jesus, was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So they had seen, that's the key word, seen Jesus and were prepared to witness to that fact. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, you might like to turn to that with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, because here Paul again speaks of Christ's death and resurrection, mentioning the huge number of witnesses who saw him risen from the dead. So he says 1 Corinthians 15, selecting from verses 3 to 8, and I quote, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. So it's basically saying, if you want any more proof, go and talk to them. And then he continues, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Of course, referring to his experience on the road to Damascus. So proof and witnesses, very important in Paul's mind to show that Christ was indeed risen from the dead. And indeed we can, we can sense Paul's excitement as he ponders the far-reaching consequences of the resurrection and considers the depth of what it means for all believers. So for example, it means having put our faith in Christ and died to our old lies of sin, we have now been raised. We have now been raised, back to that picture we were thinking about earlier. We have now been raised to new life in Christ, such that that believers, quote, no longer live for themselves, but for him, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Believers no longer live for themselves, but for him. And this is symbolised by baptism. This is symbolised by baptism. Look at Romans 6 and verse 4. And there we read, and I quote, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Wonderful words, isn't it? And that's what happens when we go down into the tank. Buried with him in baptism, 
raised to new life. We come out with new purpose and attitudes and values that we have publicly said we are going to live by. And Colossians 2.12, quote, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So every time we see a baptismal, it's about death and it's about life, about those two things. Not only that, but God has, and I quote from Ephesians 2 verse 6, raised us up with Christ. See, this is not the end of it. He's got more to say, and this is it. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we've not just been raised to life, we've been seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now what that means is that believers are permanently benefiting from heavenly blessings while they're still on earth. That's what that means. Seated with him in heavenly realms. We aren't literally, right? It's picture language to show that heavenly blessings are ours now while we're still on earth. And therefore, we should be heavenly minded. Heavenly minded rather than having hearts set on the things of this world. Colossians 3 verse 1 says this, and I quote, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The resurrection also means that Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered death. And so believers don't need to fear it because Christ has conquered death. You and I do not need to fear death because Christ has conquered it. I'm quoting from Romans 6, verse 5 and verse 9. We will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no mastery over him. And he makes that point also in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And of course we see it demonstrated wonderfully in the Gospels, don't we? In John 11, 25, 26, the tomb of Lazarus. And one glorious day in the future... This is what Paul is looking to. Those who believe will share in Christ's victory over death. So Paul says one day we're going to share in that victory over death. 2 Corinthians 4.14, quote, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us in his presence. Isn't that wonderful? Don't need to fear that Christ raises with Jesus and presents us in his presence. And Paul assures us that this will happen because, quote, Christ has indeed been raised. And now he uses an interesting phrase. The first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has indeed been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now this word first fruits is important to grasp. 
it refers to the first sheaf of the harvest. The first sheaf of the harvest, which was always given to God as a mark of acceptance that the whole harvest belonged to him. And if you look back in Leviticus 23, 10 to 11, 17 and 20, you will see more about that, the giving of the first sheaf, as saying, this is acknowledging, Lord, that it all belongs to you. We give you the first fruits that we have produced. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God's pledge and promise to believers that we too will be raised as part of that future heavenly harvest, that harvest of those who belong to him. And this wonderful picture appears during a section where Paul is answering those who are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 13. You see, in Paul's day, most Greek philosophers were of this opinion that there was no resurrection from the dead, which is why he experienced such a sneering response when he preached about the resurrection in Athens, Acts 17, verses 18 and 32. You can see the sneering response there. And since Corinth was a Greek city, not that far from Athens, it's not surprising that this teaching had infiltrated the church in Corinth. And he, Paul points out to the Corinthians in uh, chapter 15, verses 13 and 17, quote, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection, as these Greek philosophers are saying, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. That's what he says. It's important and central the resurrection is. And this would also mean that believers who have died, verse 18 of chapter 15, quote, are lost. In other words, if there's no resurrection, we might as well give up preaching the gospel and go home. That's how central the resurrection is to the Christian belief and faith. And because it's central, that's why, just to backtrack slightly, he emphasises that sheer number of witnesses. It's not just one or two people that saw him, it was hundreds. And they're still living, they saw the resurrected Christ. And significantly, Paul includes himself among this number, as one who was totally convinced that Jesus had not risen from the dead. That was his position when he was persecuting that was his position until he encountered the risen Lord himself on the road to Damascus, which, as we know, is an experience that transformed his life and saw his birth as an apostle, as we reminded ourselves at the start of this study. So that's why Paul can state unequivocally that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. I've seen him. So our hope is not in vain. This central truth stands. There are witnesses, there is proof, I'm part of that. 
is what he's saying. But he doesn't stop there. Because Paul not only speaks of Christ's resurrection, but also of his ascension, saying that Jesus was, and I quote from 1 Timothy 3.16 and Ephesians 4.10, taken up in glory, that's Timothy, and ascended higher than all the heavens, that's Ephesians. And continuing in Ephesians, but 1.20 to 22, quote, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. And God placed all things under his feet, thereby making him, quote, the head over every power and authority. Colossians 2 and verse 10. So he's seated in heavenly realms. So he talks about him being ascended and being seated at God's right hand in the place of power. And that means, the symbolism of that is, that Jesus is in the highest place of honour and authority in the whole universe. That's what that's saying. And it's also saying that whatever supernatural deities people believe in, and you have to remember that people of Paul's day believed in many, many such supernatural beings. What he's saying is that Jesus has authority over all of them. So he's basically saying no matter what you believe or who you believe in, they're under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ who's been ascended and seated higher than any of them. And that there's no name which is higher or more powerful than the name of Jesus and all powers and authorities must bow before him and acknowledge his lordship. Which is where we come to this wonderful passage, Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11, so well known to us. But this is so important. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But even that's not all. Because Paul explains that now Jesus has been exalted and he's seated in the place of honour, he's able to intercede and to plead. He's able to intercede and plead on our behalf before the throne of God. Romans 8:34, quote, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, then he could have said again, and even more than that, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is our representative. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Jesus is our representative in the presence of God. We don't have to represent ourselves. Jesus himself pleads for us. And this means that our salvation is secure because it's in his hands, not in our hands. As both our great high priest and sacrificial lamb who paid the price for our salvation, Jesus is the only one who can mediate between God and mankind. No one else is able to do this because 
Jesus alone, Jesus alone is both God and man, making him the perfect mediator between the two. The perfect mediator between God and man. And in 1 Timothy 2.5 we read, quote, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And Paul also speaks about Christ's return, which it seems that he believed was imminent. Writing to the Romans, he says, in Romans 13, 11 to 12, quote, Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Which to me definitely speaks of imminence. He believed in Christ's imminent return. And it could be argued that this is why Paul counselled the Corinthians that in view of what he calls, quote, the present crisis and the fact that, quote, the time is short, unquote, they were better off not to marry. That this is why he made that point. Indeed, and I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26 and 29 to 31. Those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Unquote. So you see that Paul encouraged such an, atti- an attitude so that they could be, and I quote from verses 32 and 35, so that they could be concerned about the Lord's affairs and, quote, live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Unquote. So the implication is, that they could then spend their lives spreading the gospel unfettered by worldly concerns before Christ's return. So he's basically saying, look, the day's almost here. Forget what you've got. Live as if you hadn't got it and get out there and communicate the gospel before it's too late because it's urgent that we do this. And that's what I would like to see you doing. Now, the fact that the Gospels were not written immediately after the Ascension, but decades later, in fact, Mark was the first Gospel written. I know Matthew's the first in the New Testament, but Mark was written first. Just take it from me for the time being. That was written around AD 65. And if you do 65 minus 29, which was likely when Jesus actually died and rose again, you will see it's several decades later. And this suggests, does it not, that the imminent return of Christ was a widely accepted view in the early church. Therefore, the first Christians would have reasoned, there's no point spending time writing down 
the events of Jesus' life when he's coming back anytime soon. Spreading the gospel, getting people saved is the most important task. And this urgency you see in Paul's letters. And Paul is in no doubt that when Christ does return, he will judge the world. Acts 17.31, and I quote, For he, that's God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So there's the credentials for dispensing the judgment. The fact that he is God, he's risen from the dead, he's conquered death. And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 8, Paul speaks of, quote, Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. And he also speaks of, quote, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, end of quote. Now, not only does Paul see Christ the judge as characterised by justice and righteousness, he also sees him as characterised by omniscience. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, quote, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. So when Christ returns, he will judge. That's the clear message there, and it's about to happen anytime soon, is how Paul sees it. Now we'll conclude this study by looking at what Paul had to say about the divine Christ. The divine Christ. Paul's completely certain that Jesus is divine, that he's God come down to earth in human form. As far as Paul's concerned, if you want to know what God's like, take a look at Jesus. Because he is God in the flesh, God incarnate. Colossians 2 verse 9, quote, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And Paul believes that God is made known through Christ, who shows us what God is like. Colossians 1.15, quote, He is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness. There's that phrase again, all his fullness. Not parts of God, but all of God dwell in him. And in fact, if you'd like to turn with me to Colossians 1, verses 13 to 20, we'll see that there are further mind-blowing statements found there. And this is the passage of all Paul's writings where he most clearly identifies Jesus, the son he loves, that's God loves, as the divine Christ. This is the key passage for that. Colossians 1, 13 to 20. I've already quoted from verse 15. And in it, Jesus is portrayed as creator and redeemer, reconciling mankind to God. Here we're getting some words coming back again that we looked at in the first half of this study. 
redeemer, reconciler. These were all roles normally associated with God. It was God that created, it was God that redeemed, it was God that reconciled. So normally roles associated with God, but here ascribed to Christ. Christ involved with creation, the redeemer, the reconciler. So in verse 15 we see he is, quote, the firstborn over all creation, unquote meaning that Christ is sovereign over creation and was involved in the very act of creating the cosmos. Verse 16, quote, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Verse 17 tells us that he predates creation and he sustains it. Quote, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And because he's divine, Christ was able to bring about our salvation through his death on the cross. He's redeemed us, he's forgiven us our sins, and he's reconciled us to God, as we saw in the first part. Quote, look at verse 14. Quote, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Then down to 19 and 20. For God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. End of quote. Christ is also the first to rise from the dead, which is further proof of his divinity. Verse 18, quote, He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. End of quote. In other words, there's no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 6, he is, quote, in very nature God. In very nature God and has, quote, equality with God. In very nature God, equality with God. He's divine. He is the divine Christ. He's above all things. He has power over all things. And he's seated in the place of authority, as we saw vividly described in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. And these verses in Philippians actually echo Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23, where we read, quote, I am God and there is no other. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Unquote. So Paul, what he's done there in that quote from Philippians 9 to 11, is he's taken the very words used to describe Yahweh, used to describe the Lord, that's what Yahweh means, the Lord, and applied them to Jesus to emphasise his divinity. Taking Isaiah's words about God and applied them to Jesus. Paul's taken the very words. In fact, in his letters, it's interesting to note that Paul uses the term Lord interchangeably to refer to both God the Father and to Jesus. And he often mentions both God and Jesus together in the same 
sentence. So in other words, he's doing all this to stress that Jesus is divine. And these claims that Christ was the one and only, quote, image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4, and the one and only Lord of all, set the Christians on a collision course. On a collision course with the culture of the day, which regarded such a view as that as intolerant at best, and at worst, potentially disruptive to the fragile peace and stability of the Roman Empire. And Christians ultimately had to choose whether to maintain their belief in the unique divinity of Christ by saying, Jesus is Lord, or to obey the emperor by saying that he, rather than Christ, was Lord of all. And for many, it was a life or death decision. 